Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Aaron Cotton, and I'm the Family Discipleship Pastor here at The Grove, and it's an honor to, uh, to be before you and to continue on in uh, the Sermon on uh, the Mount. I mean, I'm still recovering a little bit from uh, Greatest Thy Faithfulness, so thanks, Chris and Carissa uh, and Meredith and John, for playing for us this morning. I mean, that's just solid truth uh, as, we, uh, as we navigate the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, if, we've, if you've been in here any length of time, you, you've seen Jesus on the move uh, literally flipping things um, upside down in our world's values and our culture's values and say, no, this is what it looks like to flourish in the kingdom. And every time I read the Sermon on the Mount, as I've been thinking, uh, even just listening to sermons each week, uh, I've been thinking about growing up uh, when my mom would tell me to clean my room. When I was a kid, I'd go to my room and I would uh, go get that thing ready because we had company coming over. And uh, my tendency was not to put things back where they actually go, if you have kids, you know where I'm going with this. But to just shove everything in the closet. Everything I possibly could just to stuff it in there. That way when she showed up, when authority showed up, uh, that the room would be clean and everything would be nice on the outside. But on like the backside in the corner, all my toys were up in there. All my clothes were never, of course, folded. They were just kind of shoved in there. And my mom, we knew. She would go over to the, say, oh, it looks good in here, uh, but let's go over here to your closet. And she would go over to the closet, and everything would just fall down on her. And that's what Jesus is doing, y'all. He's saying, hey, I know it looks good in the living room. I know it looks good in the bedrooms, but, hey, let's go over to the closet. Let's talk about how things are back in the back recesses of our heart, and let's talk about your motive. Let's talk about your drive. Because we, what we see this morning on uh, this, this Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is going to uh, tackle the topic of fasting. Matthew 6 uh, starts out talking about that, hey, this is how we are to give, this is how we are to pray, and then this is how we are to fast. And when we think about fasting, we may be thinking, oh man, that's just reserved for like the, the, the super Christian. But listen, y'all, Jesus is taking an everyday practice, a normal rhythm in the Christian life, just like uh, giving is, just like praying is. And as you see in the text, it's not if you fast, but when you fast. The word says in verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Get that, y'all. That their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I'd say to you, they have received their reward. You see, the religious people during that time, they have taken a command uh, from the Old Testament and they have exaggerated it. And now, now not, no longer they, are they fasting to connect with the Lord. They're using it to make much of themselves, to make how awesome they are. If y'all remember Josue, when he preached, he grabbed that big old box and had a phylactery, how obnoxious that looked. Like these were uh, modern day bubble heads. And Jesus' eyes. Because their heads were full. They were using spiritual truths and spiritual disciplines to inflate themselves rather than actually connect with the Lord. Because there was a, 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 a narcissist, a competitive narcissist within the religious that would no, not, not, not serve others with God's truth, but they would use this truth to lord it over them to elevate themselves. And church... If we were to be honest this morning, there's a, there's a competitive nar narcissist in each one of us that loves to be adored, to love to the recognition and the approval of people. And sometimes we can even use church and we can use the Bible as a means to get that recognition. And Jesus says this morning, hey, let's open up the closet. Let's address the heart. And Jesus don't play. 
right there in Matthew 6, he looks at the Pharisees and says, hey, don't be like them, the hypocrites. Which that word for, for, for hypocrites is, is one who is an actor or a stage player in theater. An actor is one who, who steps outside themselves to adopt another role that isn't truly them. And they put on a mask to perform. Hypocrisy or religious theatrics of wearing a mask is exhausting. And it only takes time before the heart is revealed. You see, these people have forgotten Zechariah 7, uh, which, which was a rebuke towards Israel. It says, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me? Was it for me that you have fasted? And if we've been in church any length or time, we know this temptation. We know the temptation to put on masks. We know the temptation to play the part. We know the temptation to hide beyond religiosity and not authenticity. And underneath this mask is a lust to be adored by others by constantly playing the game of charades. Y'all played some charades. Y'all know know the game of charades. I love some charades. You give me a card, I can act that thing out. I love it, man. It's one of the things, one of the games like I, I, I enjoy, but to live that life of charades, to play a part that isn't really you, is to neglect the self, neglect the soul, and forfeit who God has designed you to be. And it also leaves people guessing. You know, in the game charades, you're constantly throwing out guessing. And one of the questions maybe we can ask one of our family members is say, how do you experience me lately? Are you guessing where I am at, or am I truly being authentic or genuine with you and with others. And one of the greatest examples of this, of a competitive narcissist, is Saul. I was tempted whether or not to go to Saul, but I think it's, it's, it's so apparent uh, and, and, and a, a revealing of how we can use spiritual things to mask and elevate ourselves. If you know anything about Saul in uh, 1 Samuel 18, uh, the Bible says that uh, David started getting a reputation, and the people would sing a song. They would sing a song, and they'd say, hey, Saul has slayed his thousands, but David, he has slayed his tens of thousands. And what does Saul do? He gets irritable, he gets irrational, and he gets violent. And he attacks David because the competitive narcissist wants to be adored. And if someone else is getting that glory, I got to take them out. That's ultimately what the Pharisees did with Jesus. They couldn't handle that. They were stealing their glory. So they put him on a cross. But that cross who would come off and who would conquer the grave and live to deliver us out of this competitive spirit. In 1 Samuel uh, 15, Saul is commanded, clear command, when you go into the land, wipe out Everything. And Saul decides, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spare Agag, and I'm going to spare the best sheep and oxen and the fattened calves. And the Bible says that Saul spared everything that he decided was good. For all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, if we rewind a little bit, we see that from humanity in our fallen nature, we want to decide what is good rather than embrace the one who is ultimately good. And Saul says, no, I want want the best sheep, I want Agag. And then he gets a little conceited, not a little conceited, so conceited that he builds a monument to himself. How conceited can you be? He builds a monument to himself so that when people would pass through the land, they would see, man, Saul's got it going on. He is awesome. I mean, look at that statue. He just defeated the land. And Samuel hears word of this. And God sends Samuel to Saul to confront him. And Saul sees Samuel from a distance. This is how religious phoniness can get the best of you. He says, Saul says to Samuel, blessed be you to the Lord. 
I have performed the commandment of the Lord. No, you didn't, Saul. You did not perform the commandment of the, what the Lord just said. This is just like in us when people ask us how we're doing. How are you? Oh, I'm blessed. Better than I deserve. Blessed be to you and blessings and tidings when inwardly we're dying on the inside. We can easily put on this mask, easily hide behind Christianese rather than leaning into the self that God is inviting us to be transformed and reflect his image, his monument, not our own image. And Samuel continues on and he exposes this game of charades. He said, I love this. He says, what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? The sheep that you were not supposed to have, Saul. What is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul says, hey, it wasn't me. It was the people. Again, Genesis 3 language. It wasn't me. It was the woman. It was the serpent. All this being surfaced out. He says, but we did it so we could sacrifice them to the Lord. He ain't giving up, y'all. He ain't giving up on religion. He's not giving up on this mask. We did it so we could sacrifice them to the Lord. And the rest we devoted to destruction. Because this is what religion does. It twists God's truth to fit our own agenda. And then Samuel says to Saul, stop. Just like Jesus is calling out pretty directly. Hey, look at the hypocrites. Look how they fast. Because surface level religion on the outside must be confronted directly and confrontationally in order for them to listen. You know how hard it is to confront a narcissist? One whose heart is sold on themselves to be adored. They don't stand corrected. But Samuel comes in the authority of the word, in the authority of the Lord Almighty to say, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Samuel said, these are the words y'all want us to see. It'll be on the screen in verse 17. Though you are little in your own eyes, Saul, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. You're, you're king, so I know you come from a little tribe called Benjamin. And I know you probably struggled with insecurity of growing up in the backwoods of the country and not being like Judah, who's like the main tribe where the Messiah would come. I know you got insecurity about that. I know that you feel little in your own eyes. I know you feel insignificant, but God chose you and placed you king of all the tribes of Israel. Is this not enough for you, Saul? And Samuel continues, says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Here it is. Behold, look church, look Grove Church, these words, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is a sin of divination, of witchcraft, of sorcery, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Here it is. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. If we want to know the reward that Jesus talks about for those that fast uh, with selfish motives, this is the reward. It's separation from God himself. As Saul played this game of charades, there was, there, was a, there was a separation and no longer being used because when you have the competitive narcissist who's got hold of your heart, God can't work with that. He can't mold you. He can't, he can't shape you. And so he'll go on and use somebody else. Church, will we humble ourselves? Almost so much so that we will lower ourselves and go through a fast for a season, not playing the game of charades, not to elevate ourselves, but to be moldable by the Lord, to be used as his instrument. 
And what's most revealing about all this with Saul, why all the symptoms, why all the blaming, why all the monument, verse 24 says, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. Here it is. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Church, when we are consumed with the voice of people and this narcissistic voice within, we dismiss the voice of God. And in so doing, there's a self that is undiscovered in the secret place that Jesus invites us into and is lost in the public arena of approval. Church, what voice are you submitting to? What voice are we submitting to? Because if we don't listen in vertically to get eternal perspective, then we'll look horizontally to give room for the competitive narcissist to thrive. And this longing to be adored and compete with others rather than serve them is very much alive and well in our culture today. In just a few examples, we see the competitive narcissist in our drive for success. We see uh, maybe us or others climbing the corporate ladder, trampling over others in the process to gain more on a paycheck and have a platform to fulfill our lust for recognition. You see the competitive narcissist also, like, simply in our language. Even if you look at the way that we talk, sometimes we'll say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, man, good. I'm killing it. Or, hey, man, have you heard about their person? They're doing a good job. No, man, they are crushing it. Like, here in our American culture, we can't just say, yeah, they're doing okay. I mean, things are going all right. We're We're doing okay. Like, we're killing things. We're wrecking shop. We're dropping bombs. Like, here in America, there's this competitive language here in Houston, if you're tuning in to the MLB or an Astros fan, we are literally known as Crush City. We get things done. We hit home runs. However, we can rewind just a little bit back in 2017, what we don't like to talk about. The Astros were so obsessed with winning the outward picture, the front, that they lost their integrity in the process. And behind the scenes, they forfeited uh, what could have been uh, proper recognition. And we do the same. We play the game. But yet, in the back, we have some things in our lives that Jesus is inviting us into to wage war on this competitive narcissist, which we also see in our fashion. We see the clothes that we wear the, or the lack of clothes that we, we wear. Like Saul, we, we put an image out there, and then we compare ourselves with one another. Y'all know the game. Y'all know the game when someone walks in the room and you feel less thin. There's this, this action going on that we do, kind of size each other up. Kind of do the look down. Maybe for women, we look at other women and we say, man, that girl, man, she is killing it with that outfit. But good thing my hair's looking good today. Man, I got these killer shoes on. And then we give a compliment like, oh, you're looking cute today, girl. And then that girl can tend to be like, well, you don't even know the deal that I got in this junk. You don't even know. You see the game? You see the competition? Because that girl who just said, oh, I got the deal on They are the reigning champ, and they beat you to the outfit that everybody wants. It's in us, y'all, that competitive spirit. For a dude, if another dude walks in and we feel less than, I'll just unveil myself. The question I'm thinking is, can I take him out? (laughs) Something were to go down right now, could I spear him, throw a figure four on there for submission, elbow drop, can could that happen? Or if it's not, like, physical, I need to repent. But it's not physical. Maybe you're like the chess player. Like, man, I'm going to look at that guy, and I could kill that guy in chess. I could do it. I could knock him out. Play me some checkers. <laughs> Done deal. It's in us, y'all. 
It's, 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 it's in us, this competitive spirit. And, and here's the deal. It's like when we don't self-check that, we no longer look to people to serve them, but we look at people as a threat to our own ego, to our own image that we want to pronounce. And we look down on, our, on others to make ourselves king rather than look to the king of kings. You see our, this competitive nar- narcissist in our, in our diet, and you see it also in social media. And I don't feel like I need to go into a lot of this, but even what we post on social media, the image that we place out there, that literally, literally the industry knows what they're doing. That's why they, they make filters so that you can take an authentic, real photo, twist it, adjust it, make it look more glamorous and gold and pretty for people to see what you're doing. And in this world, it, it, it further promotes isolation, it promotes comparison, and we feel alone. And even in the church, what I see what, on social media is this, this, this image of, hey, look at all that I'm doing. I got my Bible out, I got my mug out, I got my picture going on and how I'm writing up in, my wor- in, in the Word. And, and, and I just want to caution us that will we pause before we post? Will we do a self-check and rest in Jesus' righteousness rather than prove that we are right with our opinions? Will we rest in that? Will we pause? Will we search, allow the Spirit to search our hearts? Because Jesus says in Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by others. No, God prioritizes intimacy over mere outward conformity and a heart of surrender rather than empty sacrifice. He longs for us to be with him before doing for him, to listen to his voice rather than bend to the other voices, to commune with him and adore him in the secret place before stepping out in the public place to be adored. Question, church, is the Father's delight in you enough? Is it enough? Are you little in your own eyes, as Samuel said to Saul? Is this delight enough, or will we look to that delight somewhere else? Because you may ourselves, we may ourselves feel insignificant this morning, or undervalued, or underappreciated, or maybe we're struggling with being ashamed of our background. Listen, church, the King of Kings calls you his own. You are seated with him in the heavenly realm. You are complete. You are an heir. You are a recipient of his promises and presence. You have been bought with the price. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Receive this, y'all. You are secure and significant in his eyes. You are his kid. Therefore, you are free to feast at the table of his goodness and not look for it anywhere else. This is what we celebrate communion, which we'll do here in a little bit. We celebrate those that who were once far off have been brought close at the seat of the table because of what Jesus has done. Will we fast to feast on his presence? And because the, our Father's gaze is enough in the secret place, we seek to humble ourselves and pursue him with gratitude in our fasting. So Jesus starts with, hey, this is how not to fast. But look with me in your word, verse 17 says, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So our first point this morning was to identify the problem, to identify the competitive narcissist. Number two, second P, uh, P is, the, is, the, is the principle of fasting. Because here Jesus assumes we would be a people of fast. Again, it's not an if we fast, it's a matter of how we fast. 
But there's a difference between Christian fasting and fashionable fasting. One focuses on spiritual health, and the other just wants to get our body looking good. So people can look at us and say, man, that got cut. I see the difference between Christian fasting and fashionable fasting. We are to take care of our bodies. I don't want to downplay that. We are to trim out, trim out, trim out excessive eating and getting a proper diet and, and, and exercises is a great thing. We are embodied souls, and in order to tune into the spirit in our souls, we need to take care of our bodies so we can listen to what's going on. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The offering of our bodies is, is worship. We're temples. We house the Lord. We need temple cleansing. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. And keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see, our bodies, they can either drag us down, they can cause us to drift, or disqualify ourselves from ministry. Or our bodies can be used as a vehicle to keep us alert and more sensitive to spiritual things. I don't know if you all have those days where you're just feeling off, like something's going on in the morning, you can't get enough coffee to wake yourself up. You just like you're just getting lethargic. I I I have those days. You're just feeling slothful, and, and and the Lord just has something about going outside, taking a walk, sweating, going to the gym if you needed to go to, go to the gym to to wake us up a little bit, to be able to discern like, hey, what is going on in my soul that my body is preventing me from hearing, because I'm not taking care of it. So there's value in exercise. There's value in in dieting. But however, there's a distinction between dieting. And fasting. See, Christian fasting is it's spiritual in nature and it has a specific purpose. It typically involves abstaining from food or drink for a certain amount of time. And if we look to the scriptures, it will help us see, hey, what is fasting? What is fasting about? What do, what do we see in the Bible? And just a, a quick overview, we see that the command to fast was first initiated in the Day of Atonement. That the people would fast in order to remember. The people would also fast in connection to humility or the confession of sin. Fasting, uh, fasting was practiced at the arrival of bad news, a plague, or grief. Fasting was used to, to seek God's deliverance or protection from an incoming threat. Fasting was used to, to strengthen prayer life in a return to God. Jesus himself fasted for, for 40 days to con to, for the purpose of concentration on the work of the Father. Prayer and fasting are also closely connected in Scripture, and that's why we see in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about prayer, and then he talks about fasting. And then later says about his disciples, when he's confronted by, by John the Baptist's disciples, they say, hey, Jesus, why aren't you people fasting? He said, hey, I'm here, but when I'm gone, they will fast. Again, the practice of fasting isn't just for, like, the super Christian, because there is no super Christian but for all who desire to follow Jesus. And it's intended to be a regular rhythm in the life of the believer, just like giving and prayer spoken about earlier in Matthew. But one of the greatest examples, if I could point, if I kind of like listed those things out and like kind of lost and all that, hear this, y'all. Here's the purpose of fasting. And we see it in a character named Anna in Luke chapter 2. There are many reasons to fast, many warnings to heed, a lot of things to self-check in our heart. But when we look at Anna, 
in the temple when Jesus was being presented, we see that she was 84 years old and she was a widow. And the Bible says that she was worshiping and fasting and praying. And just a side note real quick, like just because we get older doesn't mean that we can take a step back out of the community that God's called us into. Just because we get older doesn't mean that we pursue a dream of retirement that, that now neglects us to not exercise the spiritual disciplines. Church, we, we, we need some wisdom. We, we, need, we need older people still within the church, still bought in, sold out for the kingdom because there's still kingdom work to be done. So when I'm old and gray, y'all still know me, just text me, Anna. Just let me know. Let's not forget Anna, the one who was advanced in years, who was worshiping and fasting and praying. Because that's our purpose, y'all. What's the purpose of fasting? It's worship. What's the reward Jesus speaks of for those who fast for him and not for the crowd? It's connection. It's in its enjoyment as we exchange the ache and the long of emptiness for the fullness of glory. That's why David Mathis writes this, Christian fasting is not mainly about what we go without, but who we want more of. To go hungry for a time is to experience Jesus, not for the, for the word just to kind of be distant and we read about Jesus in, in, in the wilderness, but for us to identify him with him in the wilderness as he fasted, to go hungry, to hunger for him. That's why Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And it was there in that wilderness, Jesus experienced a deep intimacy with the Father that he wouldn't have experienced if he didn't go into the wilderness with fasting. Y'all, there's worship in fasting. There's connection and there is enjoyment. Fasting is an invitation to purge that which is unnecessary in the heart so we can spiritually feast on God and his word. Well, we fast to feast and it's not just ref refraining from food, but it's a means of grace where we deepen and, and, and direct our affections Godward rather than be consumed with all that is downward. Matthew Henry says this. He says, says that fasting serves to put an edge upon devout affections. That sounds good. i got to read that again. That fasting serves to put an edge upon devout affections. What does this mean? Fasting is an opportunity to sharpen our affections, to put an edge on our desires but by cutting out competing loves. More than any other discipline, fasting reveals what we are feasting on, the things that control us, things like anger, jealousy, strife, fear, or food, or drink, or success, or approval. If they are within us during a time of fasting, they're going to come out and surface. They're going to be out there. But yet we have this hope that God says, hey, in a time of fasting, there's a time of, of spiritual breakthroughs that maybe we wouldn't have experienced if we didn't do it, any, do it as well. If we didn't go through with this. Not just amongst individually, but as, as, as a church. Now listen, y'all, I, I love bread. I love bread. And during COVID, I've realized that I really like bagels. And y'all are about to judge me right now, which I don't care with your little judgy eyes. Some of the best bagels that you can find are at Walmart for $1.50. A side go cheese kind of bagels. And y'all, during COVID, I just feasted on those things. It came to the point where I, like, would think about it. I wake up in the morning and be like, oh, man, 
Can't wait to get a bagel. It's going to be delicious. Gonna put some, I, the bagel isn't enough. I got to put cream cheese on it. And then cream cheese ain't enough. I got to throw some eggs on there. And I got to throw some bacon and then some more cheese on top. If we're not careful, we don't have this self-reflection of, I, I, this may be getting the best of me. Like, you better be careful. If we're on a Mexican joint and uh, we're, we're eating. I, I catch myself because I love some chips too. I could feast on some chips and get my full on. But if we do that, we get the chips in front of us and we, and, we, and, we, and we enjoy those so much, we'll miss out on the main course. Fajitas are coming. That's what I, that's what I get as, as a Mexican Jew. I don't know what you get. You get those cheese enchiladas. The fajitas. The fajitas are coming. But if I get my fill on with chips and salsa, I won't be able to fully enjoy the meal that has been prepared for me. Listen, Chef Jesus, he's prepared a meal. Chef Jesus, y'all, he's prepared a meal, and the meal is himself, but yet we're, we, we tend to just feast on chips and crackers. If you're like my son, on goldfish. When yet there's a meal that is prepared for us when we, when we wait, because fasting gives us the opportunity to fight over indulgence and compulsion. I mean, if you think about our world, we have instant fulfillment at our fingertips. I mean, we swim in it in our world. Within a click of a button, a stroll through the fast food drive through line, going to the grocery store that's right around the corner where you don't even have to get out to get the groceries. Just roll up in that jump, pick up order, open up the trunk, and they'll load it for you. If we're not careful, we can be overstuffed, overfed, and overly comfortable and have allowed our belly to be our God. Quoting Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. Because fasting gives way to identify also with those who live in hunger every day and to be praying and seeking ways to alleviate poverty. This, this creates an opportunity to get outside ourselves and consider those who are hurting and hungry with a sense of urgency of, hey, what can I be doing about it? And it's not those who are only physically hungry. When we're fasting, we're also uh, allowing the Spirit to do a search within us for those who are spiritually hungry. For our neighbors who long to be filled, who are content with the chips when we've had the fajitas, and then we don't go tell them about the fajitas. But fasting has a way of alerting us, to awaking us up, to produce a sense of urgency, not only to eliminate physical poverty, but spiritual poverty. And so the question, church, is will we fast? Will, will, will we fast based upon the practices all the way back, dating back to the Day of Atonement, to, the, to, to, to Jesus fasting, to the early church fasting? Will, be, will we be a people who not just like kind of neglect this discipline, but actually embrace it? Because my goal this morning was to, 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 to remind us of a powerful tool of grace that is able to, to enrich our enjoyment more of Jesus. Because fasting is an invitation to go without to feast on Jesus and join him as he brings his kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. Not just for the individual, but as we as a church fast together, the spirit moves and we get more of him. Fasting has changed the course of history. Fasting has changed not the course of history, it changes the future. In Acts chapter 13, the Bible says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. That literally within the early church, they didn't know what else to do. 
They kind of, you know, the Bible says in Acts 1 that the, the, the gospel would go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the world. And they're, they're in Acts chapter 13 saying, we don't know what else to do. We didn't go to seminary for this. There's no seminary class for this. There's no missions textbook we can order from Amazon. Get two-day shipping to get to my house to kind of look at the manual for what to do next. The people of God, what they do? They worshiped, they prayed, and they fasted. And they laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them out. Y'all, this is huge. We would not be the church today if it wasn't for Acts chapter 13. You would not be in this room if Acts chapter 13 isn't in there through praying, worshiping, and fasting. It was the missionaries that sent out that saturated the Roman Empire with the gospel. And that gospel that is still alive, still is the power of salvation, has brought you to this room today. And it started with fasting and praying because fasting changes the course of history. Not only see this in Acts chapter 13, but also in 2 Chronicles 20 with a guy named Jehoshaphat. Say that five times fast. Jehoshaphat was a king, and there was a threat that was coming in. And as a king, if there was an army coming in to invade my territory, my mind's going towards how can I, like, get some strength? How can I, like, develop some strategy? Jehoshaphat called a fast on the land. He said, no, 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 we don't have the strength in ourselves. we got to be dependent upon the Lord. And the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehazel, and they said, listen, all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear, do not be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but it's God's. When we fast, when we depend upon the Lord, we allow him to fight rather than self-sufficiency in our own strength, our own narcissistic tendencies, and allow the Father and the Spirit to move within us to be transformed to Jesus' image rather than our own image. Because cha- uh, fasting changes the course of history. It changed it back in 1756 with John Wesley. There was a threat that was coming in. The people there in England fasted and they prayed and the French were averted. We see fasting that people would do and that, that God would move. The Spirit would move. It, it, it's happened before and it can happen again. Will you pick up church? What Jesus considers normal for those who desire to follow him. Will you fast? There are plenty of things that we can fast from besides food. If you have conditions that prevent you from doing so. We can all lay something down for a season for the sake of the kingdom. And I encourage us to seek the Lord in prayer and follow pursuit as he leads. And as you do, would you ask the question, what is getting the best of me? And what is preventing me from enjoying Jesus more fully? Imagine if you ventured into that, like, that, that realm, into the secret place with the Lord alone, you and your Bible, without social media, without people knowing all the things that you're going through. Can you imagine just meeting Jesus in that secret place to allow him to do a search in you like Psalm 139 says, search me, O God. Let there be, if there's anything offensive in me, let it be, be departed from me. But that we would run after him fully and freely, making much of him. What are you willing to fast from? Is it social media? Is it entertainment? Is it food? Is it eating out? Is it drinking? What, whatever it may be that's preventing us and giving our all to the Lord. Can you imagine, church, 
Just imagine if we embraced fasting to feast on God. I mean, what spiritual breakthroughs would we experience personally, and what kind of kingdom impact could our church have on our community? Think about that for a second. So let us lay down the competitive narcissist within and sharpen our desires for God's glory because there is where we find our fill. Will you fast? There's enjoyment and worship and connection that waits. Let me pray, and we'll continue on in worship. God, it says in your word in Psalm 81, it says, open your mouth wide. And God, I pray as we as a church, as me, as myself, would, would, would humble ourselves with hunger. You say, open your mouth wide, and as we humble ourselves, and you say, I will fill it. God, if there's anything in our lives that is preventing us from enjoying you fully, God, would you reveal those things now in this moment? There may have been some things that were talked about, like the competitive narcissist and the drive for success and the image that we put out there or the way that we've been doing church for a season. God, would you, would, would you reveal those masks? Would you reveal our interaction on social media? God, would you reveal our hearts? Because, God, you're after our heart before our mouth or our feet. God, would we pursue you in the secret place and be so content in your delight over us that we would rest in that and we wouldn't look for delight anywhere else. To our world, following you, Jesus, is radical. But it's this radical pursuit is where we find our most enjoyment. So God, I pray that we lose ourselves in the pursuit of making much of you in our eating, in our drinking, in our interaction. God, we need your help. We need your spirit. We can't do it without you. It's in your name I pray.